say c'est bon. Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. For the next half hour, I'll be presenting to you news, happenings, and personalities from Paris's extraordinary culinary world. So sit back and get ready to enjoy a full half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Like those French people do. Because it's all so good. Happy New Year. Here's to a fantastic start to 2016 for Parisians and all people around the world. For this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine, I'm bringing you two in-depth interviews with fascinating personalities who contribute to the Paris culinary landscape just by being themselves. First up, we'll be hearing from talented chocolatier and sculptor Patrick Roger. When you first get a glimpse of his chocolate sculptures that grace his chic boutiques at some of Paris's trendiest addresses, you can't help but marvel at the fact that such a work of art was crafted out of chocolate. Even the Musée Rodin took notice and approached the chocolate maker, sculptor, about teaming up for November's reopening of the Paris Rodin Museum. I caught up with the sculptor on the evening of that reopening back in November with the intention of trying to get inside his artist's head. The result is a fascinating glimpse into how a passion for chocolate fueled this artist's love for sculpture and vice versa. Next up, we'll be hearing from the young and dashing chef Rafael Gomez. After stints in New York, followed by Menton on the Côte d'Azur, this native Brazilian is now heading up a new restaurant in the Marais. The restaurant is called Le Grand Cœur, which of course means the big heart in French. It's executive chefed by Maro Colagreco, for whom he worked at Mirazor down in Menton, just prior to helping open this brasserie here in Paris last August. Lastly, I've resurrected a report I did while researching my documentary film about wine and climate change back in 2012. At the conclusion of December's COP21 climate talks held just last month here in Paris, there has been much hailing of successful resolutions to ward off excessive carbon emissions that many scientists claim are contributing to global warming. The audio I've lifted from my short film presentation addresses this issue. It followed on an international New York Times special report I did in 2011 on that very subject, namely wine and the effects of climate change on this delicate crop. With this December here in France being one of the warmest in recent memory, where pictures from Champagne, France's northernmost viticultural region, show flowers blooming in the Côte de Blanc in December, as if it were already spring, this issue seems to be even more relevant today. So, stay tuned as we bring you another episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine. C'est du sentiment 
boutique of chocolatier and sculptor uh, Patrick Roger and it's his boutique at the Place Saint-Sulpice and we're sitting up at the on the second floor which is a whole it's like a gallery it's like an art gallery of the sculptures that he's made in chocolate first and then they've been cast in iron I believe aluminum and it's, it's just extraordinary. We're, we're surrounded by hippopotamuses. It's wonderful. But we're here to talk to Patrick Roger, and Clementine is going to do the, tran the question translations um, for us. This superstar chocolate maker is also in the spotlight this month uh, and for the next four months uh, because his sculpture will be featured at the newly opened Musée Rodin. So this man is not just a superstar uh, chocolatier, he's a superstar sculpture as well, sculptor as well. How did you come to the profession of making chocolate? Voilà. Alors comment est-ce que vous êtes euh, arrivé à cette profession Comment est-ce que vous avez découvert votre passion pour le chocolat et comment est-ce que vous êtes devenu chocolatier alors au début c'est le hasard, et puis ensuite euh, après un apprentissage en pâtisserie, au bout de deux ans j'arrive à Paris. Au bout d'un mois à Paris, je me fais jeter sur la voie de garage. Et At first it was by chance. En, en Then after I did an apprenticeship for two years in fine pastry making, I came to Paris. And after a month I found myself in a bit of a rut, not knowing what to do next. It was at this point that everything started for me, and it was all about chocolate, in terms of it as a raw material. Chocolate gave me the means to express myself. It was a conduit that revealed me as an artist. Okay, so it sounds like you had an instant understanding with chocolate. On comprend que vous avez eu une compréhension très soudaine de cette matière et de ce travail. Ouais. Alors, au départ, c'est vraiment par l'artistique. Je vais commencer avec la matière. Je vais tout de suite comprendre que je peux tout construire avec, avoir même un passeport. Je n'ai pas besoin de parler anglais pour aller dans le monde entier. <laughs> Mais uh, uh, c'est vraiment donc, cette matière qui va me révéler. Even at the beginning, it was apparent to me that chocolate had an artistic dimension to it, that I could make pretty much anything I wanted with it. It gave me the means to travel the world in a way, without even owning a passport or speaking English. It gave me my entree to the world. And from that moment on, it was a grand histoire, a true connection with this raw material. After a bit of time, my taste in chocolate making became more developed, except that a refined taste for chocolate was something that was initially inherent, something I had naturally. I didn't need to develop it much. I had an innate culture that I had developed from growing up in the countryside. And above all, I had an extraordinary perception insofar as all that is organoleptic. I have the capacity to consume a lot when it's good, and when it's not good, it just passes through me without necessarily going through my brain. Okay, now um, you're also an autodidactic sculptor, so you're a self-taught artist, and that's saying a lot, considering that one of your sculptures is being 
featured, it's the only sculpture to be featured, but which we'll get into next, at the uh, Musée Rodin, which is just reopening now uh, here in Paris th this week after three years of renovation. But let's go back to, to, to the question. You're an autodidactic sculptor, you're a self-taught sculptor. How did chocolate making hasten you towards your, your artistic pursuit? Donc vous êtes un sculpteur autodidacte, comment est-ce que les, les deux passions de la sculpture et du chocolat euh, se, re, se rejoignent En deux, mais bien sûr plus de passion encore, il y en a plus. Mais euh, au départ, donc, encore une fois, c'est l'artistique et c'est surtout la forme qui va donner le goût. À partir du moment que l'on a intégré ça, ben c'est... Euh, Uh, le volume, la notion du volume, donc la notion they have in common the fact that they are both passions. In terms of my personal development, my work started in the form of shape and then evolved with taste. So it's not a question of my preferring one over the other. It's simply a question of my personal evolution in terms of my artistic pursuit. You can say that form gave me my taste. For me, taste begins with shape. Once this notion is integrated, this notion of volume and shape, it allows and informs the body about what comes next. Taste. This notion about shape and volume leading to taste is a sculptural notion. It's one that led me to know that in the body we can feel taste. Of course, there is the feeling, experience of taste. And of course, eyesight is also very important in giving an indication of taste. But there are all the senses, and it's this notion of sculpture, of volume and shape giving a sense of taste, that is fundamental to this experience. Fascinating. Truly, truly fascinating, especially when you see your works of art. It's just, it's, it, you have reimagined chocolate. <laughs> I think that's why people come from the world, from the, from the far reaches of the, of the globe to, to, to see your work and to buy your chocolate. Now let's, let's do our last, uh, our last point, and that is that the museum, the Musée Rodin, the Museum of, of of sculpture of Rodin is uh, spotlighting your sculpture this month and for the next four months. And there's been a book out too, like the Le Sculpture à du goût. So sculpture has taste. Tell us, take, walk us through, through that a little bit. How did that all come about? How were you chosen? Est-ce que vous pouvez nous parler de votre sculpture qui est exposée à Rodin et comment est-ce que vous êtes venu à, à exposer là-bas? Alors au départ, c'est le musée Rodin qui vient me chercher parce qu'il voit des sculptures en vitrine et puis euh, tout correspond. Forcément, on a une, une identité qui est assez proche. Évidemment, Rodin, l'œuvre de Rodin est monstrueuse. Donc ça, c'est monstrueuse dans la taille, c'est énorme. Et puis après, euh, je vais devoir répondre à quelques contraintes, hein, surtout. C'est plus important. Évidemment, que ce soit ma sculpture, mais je suis complètement libre et puis at the beginning, it was the Musée Rodin who came looking for me because they had seen my sculptures in the shop windows. Everything just sort of fit, and that my chocolate shops have a sort of brand image that was in keeping with what they wanted to do for the reopening of the museum. Our brand identities synced. The works of Rodin are monstrous, meaning enormous in size, and so are mine for the most part. Indeed, I had to meet certain parameters they laid out, but it was, of course, still my sculpture, and I was completely free, and I got the idea to go with the theme of Balzac, but to do my own original sculpture. Rodin loved women, so femininity inspired him. I too was inspired by the feminine for this work, namely Catherine Cheviot, the Rodin Museum director, and also my little daughter, who one evening threw a lambskin over her shoulders, and the vision of her inspired me artistically too. 
After I had to do tons of little things to create this piece, which measures 3.87 meters high, nearly 12 feet tall, which had to be divided into parts in order to deliver it to the museum and then reassemble it there. From that point on, the identity is sort of mixed up. For example, the top part of the sculpture is my interpretation of the kiss by Rodin, all except the head, which for me is the head of Balzac. As such, it becomes a bit complicated to read and interpret it. It's not simple. Well, again, well, that's, that, I mean, it, everybody has their own um, path, but yours is, uh, is ex extremely fascinating. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you very much for your time today. Thank you to Clementine for, for the translation. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner, here on World Radio Paris. It's wonderful of you to, to join us today, Rafael Gomez. Actually, it's wonderful to have you have me join you, because here we are. <laughs> Thank you. It's very good to have you here, too, with us today. Yeah, you know, this, this setting is absolutely gorgeous, too. This is the, it's called the Grand Cour, your restaurant, and um, it's, the setting is magnificent. It's in an old courtyard in Le Marais and there's a dance studio one of the biggest in in Paris actually that surrounds you so you're always you're constantly surrounded by noises of people taking ballet lessons or tapping to jazz and one of the things I wanted to ask you actually chef Gomez is um, the executive chef here is Mauro Colagreco who you worked for in Menton uh, before you came here and so now you're the head chef here and you were sent explicitly to open this restaurant um, with you know some other partners uh, of chef Colagreco's so that's a kind of a long-winded introduction but I just wanted to set the scene properly and ask you to talk to us a little bit about what have you found here in Paris that's different from working in Menton and then also prior to that uh, you were in New York for quite a while um so far, Paris has been awesome. Uh, I didn't think I was gonna like Paris as much as I do, just by the the reality of uh, being from Brazil, living in San Francisco, then New York, which was a huge city, and then from there I, I left to go to a little tiny city in the Côte d'Azur, which is called Monton, as as Paris said, and uh, worked in this beautiful two Michelin star restaurant called Mirazur by Chef Marco Lagreco. I, I, sorry to interrupt there for a second, but isn't Mirazur, hasn't that topped like some of the 50 best lists? Yes. Yes, luckily we have been on the top of the list for the last uh, five years and the last uh, two years, three years, we've been placed number 11th on the top 50 best, Pellegrino, and also the number one in France on the same list, which is a very awesome hour to have comparing to all the amazing restaurants that we have in, in here in like France. So going back to Paris, New York, and Monton, working in New York for me was a hell of a good experience. The could uh, the best I think I could have as being uh, a a like young cook 
trying to get my way through the hotline and working with uh, amazing people, amazing chefs. Uh, working at like Gramercy Tavern for me was uh, a second school, was where actually I learned how to cook just by watching Chef Mike Anthony. Uh, and all the great cooks that we had there and that gave me a lot of uh, strength a lot of power to keep on going and try to be better every day and then talking to chef mike opened my mind of like how to look at a vegetable how to look at the, the flowers and this and that and the proteins and how important the like our like environment is for the job we do and then I left there and went to work for Chef Daniel Hoon at the Lab Medicine Park, which is number five on the Pellegrinos, and three Michelin star restaurant, another mentality, perfection is the most important thing, and everything must be on the right place at the right time, and the techniques involved, and the two, three pages long recipes, and all this made me also get much stronger as far as uh, as a cook. And then from there, I met Chef Mauro Colagreco, and I moved to Monton to come work with him. That's quite a move. You went from New York to Menton. Like how that that was that was a jump. I mean, that's a cultural shock, I would imagine. Yes, uh, especially because uh, New York City has about seven and a half, eight million habitants, and you go to Monton and it's about uh, a thousand. I don't know, maybe two thousand. That's it's probably more, but that's how like it feels like. It's a very tiny city in the Côte d'Azur, which is a beautiful city with a great weather. And uh, how far how far is it from Menton to to Monaco to to Monaco? It's about uh, 25, 20 minutes on the train or forty minutes drive, which is uh, Monton. For people that don't know, is the last city in France towards Italy. It's right the border, and Mirazur is the last house in France territory in French territory before it, Italy. And having and being on that cliff, which is like a little bit on top of the cliff and watching the, the Mediterranean Sea from, from the kitchen in a daily basis, seeing the sun pretty much rising and setting there, was a really cool experience. And working with the products there was even better, like because living in New York City, which everything come, comes in boxes and it's a little bit harder to get... Uh, they have amazing product, don't get me wrong. It, everything is really cool. But Monton is more like uh, what we call the real farm to table. Like the people are getting their vegetables in the morning and delivering in the same morning. Like the fish guy is coming from like Italy, from San Remo, from Ventimiglia in his little truck. And Midazu was the first place in France, so he would stop at, at us first. And being a, a chef de partie there, he would just stop the truck and open the trunk and say, chef, pick your, your like fish for like the day. And that was a hell of a job, just going through all the boxes of fish that was just caught at night and being able to pick like the best gamberonis, the best uh, fish from the Mediterranean that was just freshly caught. It was a superb experience and I couldn't ask for better ingredients to, to, to work with. 
And now, and now you've made that jump again back to a big city. Are you still finding um, fresh produce uh, accessible like that? Or yes, uh, in a different scale, of course, and it's not. Uh, Unfortunately, now I do talk to all the purveyors that we like use here. I don't. I'm pretty against. I'm pretty against using big societies, uh, the big old warehouse, big companies. Uh, they are not uh, what I'm looking for, really, because I want to be able to ask for a vegetable in a certain way, and if I want to have the celery root with the roots. Or if I want to have uh, things with the leaves on and I want to use everything for the plate, I'm able to because I'm buying from the producer, which I'm still doing here. But here I talk through the phone with the guys from Normandy or from Bretagne. And even the like, Mediterranean guys, I still talk to like the people, the, like, the uh, fisheries from there which we use uh, the same fish that we used to use in Midazur like the guy sends me in the morning and then arrives here in the afternoon or maybe the next day in first thing in the morning or I'm still using very very small producers even though I'm in Paris because now here we work for I'm I'm the chef de cuisine for Morocco Lagreco but the owners here are also Julien Fouin and Ludovic and Julien Fouan is a fanatic about producers and food and all these small purveyors. Yeah, that, that's a good point to make. Julien is quite a restaurateur here in Paris. He's got, he's got a number of uh, wonderful, he's got eight restaurants and Grand Cours is, is the latest one. You know, Fayol, you were saying a little bit earlier uh, when we were chatting that you have a, like, a lot of freedom here still because you're not under the constraints of any kind of, any, you know, any kind of uh, huge, you know, ac- accolades yet. So that gives you some freedom. Yes, for my whole career, I've always worked at a Michelin star places. I've worked in one, one, two, three Michelin stars. I've been to places where they were one, then they became three, they were two, one, they became two. And like, it's really cool to have their hungry, their, their thing for the Michelin stars, the award that every chef wants it. And I would be lying if I say I don't, but at the same time, that's not what I, what I work for. That's not my, my desire to come into work. And uh, to not have a Michelin star and to be a brasserie, to be called a brasserie, um, gives us a little bit more of a comfortable space to work with. We can, we can play, we can have fun, we can make good food and not worry about uh, if there's someone judging us. We can just do what, what, we, what we feel like and uh, still making the best and not the expectations are not so high so we can always impress instead of when you go into a three michelin star place if you impress you're doing your job and if you just do a great food you're not good enough so not having it it makes us just like just gives us a little bit more freedom to play with and yes i agree with you because uh every press that every reporter journalist that came here and saw that we are called brasserie made a little comment on their writing saying that ah they're using brasserie but they're not they are bistro chic they are this they're that to be very honest these are just titles um if we don't have any 
it doesn't really matter much because that's what we do like we just do simple good food with the best product we can find and Mario and I have this in common like we really like uh, to be seasonal to be thriving for the perfect way of cooking something the the cooking point must be right the produce must be great and this is it just put it on the plate and have fun and that's that's what that was my goal when I came in here and there was the the talk the the actually chef had with me it was just like don't try to do things that we've been doing our whole entire career which is striving hours to push and to be a Michelin star to be this and that he's just like just cook with your heart and have fun and do do what you can that's a you know I think that's a that's a great summation and especially because you're here at Le Grand Cour which of course in French means means the big heart you know Chef Gomez thank you so much for for joining us uh, on the program today and uh, you're a wonderful new addition to the Paris culinary scene Thank you. Thank you, Paige. Thank you very much. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. Look around you. Evidence of climate change is everywhere, and it's happening on a global scale. Temperature increases predicted by scientists for the next 50 to 100 years will severely affect agricultural crops. Vineyards and wine grape cultivation are some of the most closely observed agriculture, the haute couture of food crops. What we are beginning to see in the world's wine-growing regions, Spain, California, Italy, Chile, France, Argentina, Australia, South Africa, of reduced crop size and severely affected crops due to climate variability, decreased optimal growing season cycles, too dry, too cold, too wet, too hot, are indicators of more of what's to come during this century. We're headed to 11 degrees of global warming, in the 2012 report from PricewaterhouseCoopers Too Late for 2 degrees Celsius, they conclude that the conservative estimate of a 2 degrees Celsius rise in global climate temperatures will be easily surpassed and that we are realistically looking at a 6 degrees Celsius or 11 degrees Fahrenheit rise in global climate temperatures by year 2100. Warming of 7 degrees Fahrenheit or beyond is incompatible with organized global community, is likely to be beyond adaptation, is devastating to the majority of ecosystems, and has a high probability of not being stable. That is, 4 degrees Celsius, which is 7 degrees Fahrenheit, would be an interim temperature on the way to a much higher equilibrium level, explains climate expert Kevin Anderson. Planning for 4 degrees Celsius in 2100, let alone 6 degrees Celsius, is tantamount to planning for the end of civilization as we know it according to review of more than 60 recent studies. What to expect? Permanent dust bowl conditions over many regions around the globe that are heavily populated and or heavily farmed. Sea level rise of some 1 foot by 2050, then 4 to 6 feet by 2100, rising some 6 to 12 inches or more each decade thereafter. Massive species loss on land and sea, perhaps 50% or more of all biodiversity, and much more extreme weather. Wine groups are the canary in the coal mine. Wine groups and vineyards are seen to be the advanced messengers of what's to come in regards to climate change effects on agricultural crops. My documentary, Wine and Climate Change, will present the most up-to-date scientific climate change analyses and take a close look at some of the climate adaptations that viticulturists are pursuing today, such as 
hybrid breeding of extreme weather resistant vines, planting in different agricultural zones, emerging global viticultural regions such as China. Knowledge equals preparedness. Thank you for listening. Please leave your comments, questions, and suggestions on our page in the iTunes store. You can find the show by searching Paris, Good Food, and Wine. And the show is also brought to you by the support of Paris Food and Wine. Visit us at parisfoodandwine.net. And a big thank you to our voiceover artist, Flynn Craddy. Thanks for joining us for this half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Myself, Paige Donner, and the rest of the team look forward to seeing you again here for the next episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Because it's so, so, so good.